0: Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. This week and next week, we've got something a bit different. Uh, Last week, Barry Eisler's latest book called The God's Eye View was released, and to celebrate the book launch, Barry did an event at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco in which I had the honor of getting to interview Barry. The interview was uh, a lot of fun, as talking with Barry always is, and since it went on for over an hour, and our usual podcasts are about 30 minutes, we decided to chop it in half for this week and next a special thanks to the commonwealth club for hosting barry uh, and myself and agreeing to share this recording with us for the podcast Uh, they also have the video on their youtube channel and you can learn more about their events on their website at commonwealthclub.org now, Barry Eisler, who has been on the podcast before, is certainly well known as a New York Times best-selling author of a bunch of thriller novels, most notably the John Rain series. In a past life, he was also a tech industry lawyer, and as his bio always mentions, a covert operative in the CIA. Uh, not surprisingly, he's interested in a number of topics that overlap with Techdirt's interests, which is why we've had him on the podcast before and of course why he's also written some great guest posts for us as well. This new book, The God's Eye View, is inspired by the Ed Snowden revelations and is built around a powerful NSA surveillance program, a whistleblower, and some intrepid reporters. Not only is it a page-turning thriller, but Barry is very careful, actually, to document how real many of the elements in the book are by including an 18-page appendix, pointing out examples of how many of the technologies and ideas in the book are pulled directly from real life Uh, the first half of our interview talks a little bit about the book uh, but mostly focuses on the nature of the surveillance state today uh, with questions about ed snowden and what barry as a former cia guy thinks of all the surveillance that's going on today so we'll just play uh that first half of the interview now i'll be back at the end briefly and then we'll have the second half of the interview next week i hope you enjoy
1: is increasingly technological. So we
0: had better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies for pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the play to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. scrutinise them, view their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig up the tech If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig up the tech Good evening. Yeah, there we go. All right. Thank you. All right. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can, of course, find us online at CommonwealthClub.org on Facebook and Twitter and on the YouTube channel. I I'm Mike Masnick, the founder and CEO of Floor64, and the editor of the TechDirt blog. And I'm also the moderator for today's program. Um, As you hopefully know already, our guest today is Barry Eisler, who is sitting right here, and a former tech attorney and startup executive in Silicon Valley and Japan. Um, and also, as his bio always makes sure we know, spent three years uh, in a covert position with the CIA's Directorate of Operations. Uh, and you know, now that I have him on stage, we can find out, you know, what he was really doing in all that covertness. Um, and of course, that experience, I'm sure, helped prompt him to author eleven best-selling novels. Uh, including his latest, which we're here to talk about in part, The God's Eye View. Uh, Barry was kind enough to send me an advance copy uh, of the book, and I can say that it is uh, an absolute page-turner in that I literally could not put it down. Um, I did not sleep for a few days because I, <laughs> it's really... <laughs> Good um, <laughs> it 's also uh, incredibly full of real world real world details and references to things that are actually happening in the news and as i've said, if you want to learn about why we should fear the NSA while still being tremendously entertained, then The God's Eye View is a book for you. Um, It is a story, of course, about mass surveillance, about the NSA, about whistleblowers, intrepid reporters, and of course, the usual edge of your seat action, which is why you keep turning those pages over and over again, whether digitally or on paper. Um, we only have about an hour here, uh, and Barry and I have known each other for a long time, and we have a way of having our conversations go on for much longer than that, <laughs> covering many different topics, so we'll try and cram as much as we can uh, into this hour that we have. So
1: welcome, Barry Eisler, back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming out tonight. So nice to see everyone here. Thank you.
0: All right. So let's, let's start in. Um, again, as I said, there's lots of different topics that we can talk about. But let's, let's start with, uh, with the book, with okay. The God's Eye View. Um, as mentioned, it's you know, very focused on sort of surveillance stuff and, and NSA stuff. So the easy question is kind of, you know, what inspired you to write this book
1: right now? Yeah. So I get all my best thriller plot ideas from the U.S. government right? Because the government's doing all these horrific things, and that I find is really disturbing uh, as a citizen, but as a thriller novelist, it's, it's like Christmas. <laughs> so uh, I, I had this idea a couple years ago, a little more than a couple years ago at this point, actually, closer to three years ago. I was working on my previous book, and I got this notion for a far-ranging system of surveillance and how it might work, not so much at the technical Level, I'm not very technical myself, but more at the operational level, like how the government might use it. And, um, and I liked the idea, and I started thinking about it, and I thought, what if there were a system like this and somebody came across it, because that's just thriller stuff, right? Um, what if somebody came across it and, and recognized that there was something really bad about all this? Um, what would that person do? And I thought, well, the person's gotta be restrained or constrained rather in some way. Well, what if it were uh, an analyst, like a, a woman maybe who's got a, a small son with a disability and she really needs that paycheck. Maybe there's some other constraints, like maybe she's, she's a single mother, and her ex-husband's a deadbeat, and she's got an ailing father with Alzheimer's who's in an expensive nursing home, and she, she really doesn't have a lot to fall back on. She needs that money. But she finds out about this program and is disturbed by it because she knows this thing is, uh, it's just, it can't be legal, it can't be constitutional, and she feels like she has to do something. And that's just conflict already. Internal conflict is a novelist I, I really like. So, so that's how the story started to get built out. My concern was that what I had in mind for this system of extremely pervasive surveillance was not realistic. I thought, I mean, it's, it's probably, I mean, can I, can I really make this work on the page? And my brand has a lot to do with realism. I really try to get things as right and as real as I possibly can in everything I write. So that was my, that was my biggest uh, doubt. That was where I had some qualms. I was like, I don't know. I mean, does the government really have something like this? Well, I was in Tokyo in June 2013 uh, doing research for the previous book when I opened up uh, Glenn Greenwald's page on The Guardian, because that's what I typically do, or at the time I did in the morning, now it's The Intercept, and read that just hair-raising first report based on a guy that just a few days later we learned was Edward Snowden, and, uh, and I, it, it just blew my week of researching in Tokyo because I was obsessed with following the news, and what I realized is that I had actually not been ambitious enough in my plotting for uh, for what was going to be the basis for this program in the book called God's Eye. And, uh, and so I have followed the Snowden revelations, the reporting based on Edward Snowden's revelations pretty carefully and have gotten tons of ideas from everything I've read. So much so that there's an 18-page bibliography at the end of the novel because it's really important for me that people understand Hopefully, after you've been super entertained, as Mike has assured you, you will be, uh, I want people to come to that bibliography and start paging through it and saying, oh, my God, this stuff is real? Because it is. Almost everything I've written about the book is real. There's a little speculation, but all the technologies exist, and probably some ones that I didn't even dream up. Everything in here exists. And uh, as Americans, I think we should find this sort of government capability extremely disquieting.
0: So... um you know, in talking about Edward Snowden, um, you know, there's always sort of this big debate about, you know, whistleblower or traitor, I guess, yeah, if you want to go to yeah. two to extremes. Yeah. Um, and you've been somewhat vocal in, in sort of talking about your opinion <laughs> um, on that. And I know that, you know, a lot of um, other alumni of the intelligence service may come out on, uh, in a different position than sure. you do. So, w- you know, where do you come down on that question and kind of what are your thoughts on mm-hmm. on?
1: Uh, Edward Snowden himself. So for me unequivocally, Edward Snowden is a hero and a whistleblower in the dictionary sense of the word Um, There are two things that I think are really important to understand about what he's done and that are frequently distorted uh, in establishment media renditions of his actions so the first thing to understand is that there's no such thing as an oath of secrecy and you may have come across this phrase many times, I know I have. Some of the cream of America's establishment, pendocracy would have you believe that government employees take an oath of secrecy. I remember David Brooks in the New York Times talking about how Edward Snowden violated his oath of secrecy and Josh Marshall in um, Talking Points Memo and many others. It became a meme, He've, and it's, it's around today. It's just one of these zombie memes that's probably never gonna go away, even no matter how much it's contradicted by the facts. So I can tell you as someone who did, in fact, spend three years in a covert position in the CIA, there's no oath of secrecy. There is no oath of secrecy. You know what there is for secrecy in the CIA and the NSA and all the government, uh, all wings of the government? A non-disclosure agreement. It's an NDA. I don't mean to belittle NDAs. I was a technology lawyer here in the Valley for Silicon Valley for about a decade. And I know a fair amount about trade secrets. And I believe that it's important to protect your trade secrets with NDAs. And it's good to have a good NDA. And I think that if you sign one, it's, it's enforceable. And not, it's not unimportant. It's not trivial. But it's not an oath. You don't swear an oath. Like if you go visit Facebook, they'll make you sign an NDA. And as crazy and extreme as Facebook is as a company, they're not yet having anybody sign an oath. So there is no oath of secrecy, it's just an NDA. So there's the propaganda, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like that's, you know, somebody violates an NDA, that probably happens all the time. It's not such a big deal. We've got to gin it up into some kind of oath, which it isn't. But there is an oath. There is an oath that every intelligence uh, employee takes, it's <clears throat> basically an oath of office. And you know what the oath is? You know what it is. It's an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. Now, I took that oath, and so did Edward Snowden, and I still take that oath very seriously. So. What's critical to understand and what gets distorted in almost every, uh, every establishment rendition of what's going on here is they talk about an oath of secrecy that doesn't exist and they ignore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution that does exist. And to have an honest conversation, a reasonable conversation, like a reality-based conversation about what Snowden did, regardless of whether you think his actions were warranted or not, you, you have to account for the fact that he had two competing imperatives. One is his NDA, and the other is his oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And this is, you may think he made the wrong decision, and I wouldn't agree with you, but I would respect that point of view. You would say, no, actually uh, his oath to protect the Constitution wasn't in play. And these, uh, these programs, even though Two, at least two federal courts have subsequently found these programs to be in fact unconstitutional. Forget about that for the moment. You could say his oath to protect the constitution did not come into play or he should have done it some other way or whatever. But you have to acknowledge that he did swear an oath to protect the constitution. And I believe that he legitimately, honestly believed his, his oath was in play. And yes, it contradicted with his, his NDA. And he was in a position where like a novel and uh, a character in a good novel, he had to decide which one of these things was more important because he couldn't have it both ways. So that's one thing that's really important to understand. You just never hear, oh, it's all about the oath of secrecy that doesn't even exist. That's one thing. And there's one other thing that I think is important to understand. It makes me a little crazy. I've, I have had this conversation with journalists or people who call themselves journalists. And it's amazing how much they want to focus on the fact that, well, he broke the law. I mean, that's another meme, right? That's another talking point. You hear that all the time. He broke the law. He broke the law. And that's, they think that that's, that's where the conversation should end. And what's curious about that to me is, yeah, he did, he broke the law. He signed an NDA, said he'd keep this stuff secret, and then he gave it to some journalists. So you got me, you know, Edward Snowden broke the law, like a golf clap, <laughs> you know. But he revealed criminality, vast criminality, on the part of our government. And if I have to focus my journalistic attentions on the criminal wrongdoing of an individual on the one hand versus criminal wrongdoing by the entire government on the other well which one is going to cause which one is likely to cause more damage alone individual citizen breaking the law or the government breaking the law so i feel like look if you want to acknowledge that edward snowden broke the law it's fine he did but you can't you can't in my opinion legitimately stop the inquiry at that point when the, when the government criminality that Snowden revealed is so much more damaging. Now the response to that is often, oh come on, um, what if everybody did what Snowden did? I love this man. I was like, what a wonderful world that would be. But forget <laughs> about that for a moment. It always interests me when people want to introduce fantasy scenarios as a way of avoiding talking about reality because here's the reality. Whistleblowing is incredibly rare. Why is it rare? We know why it's rare, a lot of reasons, and one of them is the risks And punishments that whistleblowers face are huge. They're draconian. You see what happened to Thomas Thomas Drake, Bill Binney, uh, Colleen Rowley, uh, Jessalyn Radak, Chelsea Manning was tortured according to the UN Special Rapporteur Against Torture. So becoming a whistleblower takes is a huge act of courage and conscience and conviction. Not many people, empirically, not many people are willing to take the risks. We know that, right? So having a fantasy conversation about what would happen if everybody did something that demonstrably only a few people are willing to do, is, uh, it's just a dodge. In fact, whistleblowing is really rare. Government criminality exists. So to avoid discussing government criminality for purposes of having a fantasy conversation about what, what the world would be like if everyone were free to disregard an NDA is again a very strange thing to me. And if it's not deliberate propaganda, then it's probably being driven by thoughtlessness. And I think you know, propaganda or thoughtlessness is not a bad rubric for understanding most of what passes for establishment journalism in America today. Um, Am I being too much of a downer? Because <laughs> I'm, I'm actually kind of a funny guy sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, think, I think it's good. Um, we actually have
0: gotten a couple of follow-up questions already just about... Um, the, the, that sort of difference between the NDA and an and oath, um, and sort of summarizing a couple of these questions, um, you know, does that does that difference matter um, if what he's revealing then jeopardizes, say, you know, people or operations right. or things that are happening? How right. do you feel about that? Yeah, so
1: that's it's a great question. I mean, it's this uh, concept is often called harm minimization. In journalistic circles, and I don't know any—I uh, don't know any journalist, uh, not even WikiLeaks, which often gets incorrectly tarred with this notion that they just dump all the information; they don't do any harm minimization. That's not true either. Wiki, WikiLeaks is a little further ahead, maybe, of some journalistic outlets in what they'll publish, but even they go through a harm minimization um, process. And in fact, the reason that Snowden went to the press rather than just uploading everything that he took directly to the internet, which I think we can agree he was more than capable of doing on a technological, technical level, was precisely because he wanted harm minimization procedures in place and went to uh, two journalists in particular, three, who he really trusted, uh, Glenn Greenwald, Laura poetess and Bart Gelman. He wanted them to make the call on what does the public need to know about uh, versus what how do we weigh things in another direction, where the uh, the the public's the benefit of the public's right to know would be outweighed by some actual harm that may might be done? So I know that was um, just from from seeing documentaries like Laura Poitras's Oscar-winning documentary um, Citizen Four, which if you haven't seen it, it is gripping. Like sometimes you think ah, documentary, you know, it's going to be a little dry. Like I should watch it, but the Avengers is on tonight, <laughs> <laughs> so probably I won't. It's it's amazing. Y- you feel like you are in the room watching history being made. It's an extraordinary movie. Really deserved that Oscar. Anyway, so they talked about, during the, the movie, they talked about, um, Snowden talked about his own goals in terms of harm minimization, but the results also um, speak for what he did. There is not any evidence at all that a single person anywhere in the world has been harmed because of what Snowden revealed to the press. And if you read the government's Accusations and the government's, I'm trying to, I was going to say things like you know henchmen and lackeys and <laughs> you know, words like that. They're enablers, they're uh, allies in the establishment media. You wouldn't know that, right? Because these phrases come out. They're like grave harm to national security, um, jeopardizing national security, blood on his hands, right? You know what? I, I read some of those phrases and I was like, Where have I heard those before? Why do they sound so familiar? Right, I saw that other excellent documentary, Daniel Ellsberg, The Most Dangerous Man in America. And those are exactly the same phrases verbatim that the government was using against Ellsberg, who's now treated almost universally as a hero for revealing the Pentagon Papers, um, which proved to the American people that the American government was lying to us about the course and prospects of the Vietnam War. Ellsberg's biggest regret, by the way, with regard to the Pentagon Papers, is that he didn't act sooner. He might have saved more lives. Everyone agrees that Snowden, that um, Ellsberg, is a hero now, and that's inconvenient if you want to make Snowden out to be some kind of blood on his hands, uh, agent of China, agent of Russia, et cetera, et cetera, traitor. Because it's very hard to distinguish between what the one person did and what the other did. So, um, uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So
0: I mean, after Ellsberg. You know, revealed his thing. There was all, all that. But then, you know, some things did happen out of that and change did, did occur. Right. What is your opinion of kind of where things, you know, what's changed, if anything, um, and how far has it gone? How
1: much further do you think it needs to go sort of in response yeah. to the post-Snowden document? Right. So that's another interesting bit of propaganda I come across sometimes. Like people always say like, well, has anything really changed? And <laughs> I mean, short of something really cataclysmic, you can probably always make the argument that, well, nothing's really changed, right? I guess. I mean, the NSA is still fighting to maintain all the programs it can. Um, What do you expect our intelligence establishment to do? They call themselves the intelligence community. I don't really like to be so friendly to them. I think that's just a little (laughs) too self-congratulatory. It's like It sounds so warm and fuzzy. But the truth is, Snowden's revelations have had a huge impact in a lot of areas. So depending on how you want to define it, I'd be curious about your thoughts about this, Mike, but I think probably the biggest impact of all is um, how much the revelations have driven the development of... Um, ubiquitous, easy to use encryption and the public's understanding of just how critical encryption is for protecting our privacy. And there's been a lot of, um, there has been a real impact in that regard. People, there have been Pew Research polls indicating that the number of people now who who are encrypting their websites with HTTPS or who are using the Tor browser, at least know what it is, or taking other... Um, online measures to protect their privacy has, the, num- the numbers of people who've done this have increased dramatically. And this, this matters a lot uh, because I don't want to give away too much in God's eye, but I'll just say this much. If there are only a few people in the world who are using, say, the Tor browser or other means of anonymization and encryption, then the government can fairly easy focus a lot of retail-level resources on whoever they're able to determine is using that encryption. Look at it this way. Like in a room like this, or in any room where everybody's talking, if only a few people are whispering, it's probably not that hard to try to key on the people who are whispering because you figure, hey, those are the ones who have something to hide. That's interesting, I wanna key on that. And so what, uh, what ubiquitous encryption would, would change that dynamic. It would mean that the government wouldn't know who should I be listening to? Who are the people who really have something? Who are the journalists? Who are the anti-war activists? Who are the dissidents? Those are the people who would be using encryption, and you want those people to be their behavior to be concealed in a sea of encryption. Snowden has had a tremendous impact in that regard, and I would argue that in some ways that impact, I, I could be wrong, I'm sure reasonable people could differ, but I think in some ways that, that impact might be his most significant yet. Beyond that, he did prove that um, the uh, director of national intelligence, James Clapper, was lying. Um, which is a felony, lying to the Senate during testimony, it was lying when he, when he told Senator Wyden that um, the NSA um, didn't collect uh, information, wasn't surveilling um, millions or tens of millions of Americans, at least not wittingly. That's just as, as much of a lie as there could be. Naturally, he's still in office. What can you do? But at least it's important because it changes the dialogue. You start to understand um, how much the government lies to us, and with how much impunity? Also, these programs, as I mentioned a little earlier, have now been declared illegal and unconstitutional. With words like um, "Orwellian" being thrown into the mix, and I think that's important for people to understand too. Most most important, last I would say, is um, what Snowden said he hoped to provoke um, at the outset. His biggest thing was he said, "I'm not even. Ta- of course, I have my opinions, but I'm not taking a position on whether we should have these programs or not. If the American people decide." Um, knowingly that they think these sorts of programs are a good idea, then as a democracy we can vote for them and have them. But what we can't have consistent with being a democracy is that these programs, these vast programs, wherein the government knows more and more about the people and the people know less and less about the government, we cannot have these, these programs rolled out in secret with no accountability. We don't even know about them, that doesn't work. So I think he has had a huge impact, yeah.
0: All right, so I I need to ask you, you've been going on for about 20 minutes uh, along this line, which is great and very, very interesting. But it brings up a a really big question, which I know you've been asked before, but I'm sure the people here would like to know, which is why did you join the CIA in the first place (laughs) if this is the way you feel about things?
1: Yeah, that's a fair question. Well, so it was quite a few years ago, and uh, uh, I've always been uh, a pretty patriotic guy. I am and I always have been. And my patriotism when I was in my 20s expressed itself in what I would consider to be the typical young man's uh, way, right? I mean, I was kind of poisoned by testosterone and had a pretty primitive understanding of, of America and the rest of the world. I'd never lived abroad. I had a lot of information. I read voraciously. Um, Thinking I was getting variety, but actually the things I was reading were like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the New Republic, foreign affairs, foreign policy. I mean, you don't really need to read all those things. They all have essentially the same establishment viewpoint of America and its place in the world. In general, we can always find exceptions. So I had a lot of information, uh, but not a lot of thoughtfulness, not a lot of wisdom. And I was interested in the world, and I thought it would be kind of cool to work for the CIA and defend democracy thereby. And that's why I joined Um, It was only three years because it's a really big bureaucracy and uh, what I've learned about myself in the ensuing, I don't know, quarter century or so, is I'm kind of entrepreneurial and I like to be in charge. I mean, I went from the government to a 600 attorney law firm to a four-person startup to just myself writing books and then even that became onerous because I had to work with a publisher and I found that sort of <laughs> oppressive. So the first chance I got, I started self-publishing my books. So and at some point I looked back and said, do you think this is all a coincidence, Bear? <laughs> so, um, so it was a frustrating place for, and I think it would be a frustrating place for anyone who likes to be in charge, trusts his or her own instincts and has a kind of entrepreneurial bent to work. It was a great experience. It was a fascinating experience. I'm glad I had it. Um, it's just that now I realize that what America really needs to, um, to be as strong as possible in the world, although I, that's only one value, I think it, it gets overstated. I mean, strength is one value of many. Um, to be a good citizen of the world, to be decent and good. In fact, one thing, that dis- one thing that disturbs me a little bit about America is this obsession with being great. I mean, I think it's super neurotic. If you knew someone like that, if you knew a person who was always going on about how they needed to be great, Probably wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with that person. I'd like us to spend a little more time as a country being concerned about being good rather than being great. And for those purposes, in addition to things like national strength, we don't really need more military power, more spies, that kind of stuff. I think what we need is a little more self examination, a little more accountability. I mean, after all, with great power, we know should come great accountability. Those two things have to go together, or there's going to be <clears throat> something's going to get out of balance and out of control. So my patriotism tends to express itself now in more as a kind of watchdog uh, critic, you know, loving critic, patriotic critic kind of way. I think, I think the country would benefit a lot more from that than for, from a few more rah-rah establishment pundits who don't really think about what they're saying and just reflexively take the, um, the party line.
0: Well, so um, this is a, a question from the audience. Um, but as a as a good follow up to a, to a point that you brought up earlier concerning how more people are using encryption, there's a lot more encryption out there. Um, there's also been a lot more concern yeah. lately coming from certain circles about encryption, and people are talking about things like ISIS using encryption, or <laughs> you know the Paris bombers, <laughs> yeah. or, you know attackers, yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. potentially, I mean, right. using encryption. Right. Though it turns out they didn't right. actually. Right. Um, you know, what do you think of that kind of
1: debate now? This whole going right. dark debate, as they call <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so I just I love. The, the, you know when the government's good it's pretty good I mean on the marketing angle <laughs> and going dark is awesome I mean I go on about this because I love this stuff but like when Sarah Palin I'm not a fan but when she started talking about death panels eight years ago I was like <laughs> that's good that's really good you get a really clear vivid image from that don't you you know a bunch of old people looking down at you from the desk and like no <laughs> you know like you know that's good it's really good what did the Democrats offer up against that single payer what do you see when you see single payer? I don't see anything. Maybe I see me. I'm like, I don't want to be the single payer. You know, it's terrible. So those sorts of vivid images can be really good. Um, most people won't really get too far past them. So going dark? I mean, it sounds scary. Like the FBI, they can't see anymore, really? Like you start seeing the FBI's like, got the dark glasses like Stevie Wonder or something. You know? That'd be bad. And people don't really think about what, it, what does that really mean. Okay, so a few things about this. First of all, Yeah, there's a lot of evidence that ISIS um, and other terrorist groups um, use encryption. And uh, the thing about that is it's not new. I mean, the first reports of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, it was Al-Qaeda at the time, using encryption, I think started emerging, I want to say 13 years ago. It might have been 15 years ago. You can Google it. There was a Guardian article. I mean, the notion that um, committed adversaries of the United States are so stone stupid that they don't know the first thing about encryption, is probably right up there as a propaganda tool with the notion that if you read hardened terrorists, their rights, they'll clam up. But right before that, they were gonna tell you everything. I mean, the guy's like, he's, no, no, don't, don't, don't do the Miranda thing, because I want to tell you all our operational, pl- oh, you said it, you spoiled it. <laughs> It's crazy, and by the way, you know this is the same government who comes up. Want to hear another great, uh, another great imagery? I forget what general said this, but he's like, "We have got to really be careful transporting these prisoners. These are fanatics. These are the kinds of people who wriggle free from their bonds and chew through the hydraulic cables of an airplane to bring it down." <laughs> yeah, that's a quote. And I said, "Damn, that is really good. I mean, you see some guy, and it's like he's like, <laughs> it's like I mean, he's so committed, you know. It's great imagery, genius. But I'm like." Wait Wait a minute, you mean the guy like he's chewing through the operational cables, but then you say, yeah, but, but he was going to tell you all the plans, but then you gave him the Miranda warnings and he realized they didn't have to talk. I mean, it's like, it's just crazy. They got to get their story straight. <sighs> so um, yeah, there's lots of evidence that, um, that terrorist groups have been using encryption forever. There's also evidence that they don't. So for example, the Paris Bombers were brothers. They were living in the same apartment flat. Almost certainly their planning took place in like their den or living room and uh, if the NSA really wants to stop this kind of attack, then it should start getting serious about deploying the kinds of telemonitors that George Orwell <laughs> depicted in 1984, because we've got to be able to monitor uh, face-to-face conversations in people's bedrooms, living rooms, everywhere. If, we wanna st- if you want to stop that Paris attack, um, preventing encryption, backdoors, whatever, is demonstrably empirically not going to work because these people didn't use encryption to plan the attack. What they did is they met face-to-face. So if, if we're going to bug every face-to-face conversation in the world, I personally don't think that's a good idea, but you know, in, in line with what Snowden was trying to do, okay, like at least let's have a discussion about that as a society and decide whether we think it's a good idea.
0: Yeah, and, and actually just uh, this week there was a paper that came out from Harvard, I don't know if you saw this, yeah. that, that looked at yeah. the, the going you. dark yeah. situation and basically said like, okay, you may have this tiny part that's going dark, but at right. the same time, because of all this technology yeah. and the smartphones in our pockets yes. and all the internet services that we've used, we've actually given the intelligence services much more access to information. Yeah. If you look at you know, the, the pie of, of information that, yeah. uh, that they do have access to has grown. So the idea of, yeah. that going dark is a big issue, yeah. you know, uh, seems a little bit uh, <laughs> exaggerated. Yeah, no to, doubt. To and least. in
1: fact, I think you could even go further and say to some extent, the fact that we're living in the what the NSA has called in one of, its <clears throat> one of the slides, Snowden revealed, the golden age of signals, signals intelligence. It's actually a little bit of a disservice to the NSA. Here's what I mean. Do you remember that old, I think it was a Bazooka Joe comic when I was really little, like the, the guy is looking for something under a streetlight, And someone says, hey, what are you looking for? And he says, oh, I lost my watch over there. And the guy says, why are you looking over here then? And the guy says, because the light's better over here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think so much of the NSA's obsession with bulk surveillance is being driven by the fact that it's a, technical, it's a cool technical problem that people can solve, people at the NSA can solve. Whether it's actually keeping us safe as it's built is a totally separate question, but as a technical problem, it's really interesting and they can do it. And that makes it attractive, totally separate from its utility as a way of protecting America from attack. So if encryption really did become ubiquitous, the NSA, the FBI, and other intelligence and security Organizations would have to go back to the kind of good old-fashioned retail police and intelligence work that, so far, is the only demonstrated way that uh, American that, that the American government has ever prevent, uh, prevented a terrorist attack. There's no there's no evidence at all that bulk surveillance has kept anyone safe from a terror attack. There's none, and in fact, the notion that it has is a myth on the same level as the notion that torture kept us safe or that torture um, led uh, American forces to find Osama bin Laden, who was at that point basically useless anyway to anyone who wanted to harm America. So these are myths that get promulgated because the government does something and it's not really good, right? Like torture, that's not good. Bulk surveillance, um, that's not good. And then what are you left with when, when it comes out that you've been doing these things? What's your only argument? It worked. That's what they want to talk about. That's how the frame, that's how the debate is then framed. And if it doesn't even work, what are they left with? It's just illegal. That's not very good.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's funny. I mean, the the Section 215 program in particular, right, you know, that was the first one that that Snowden revealed and there was all this talk about how important it was. And then, you know, Congress, you know, some people started to ask questions and drilled yeah. down, and finally said that it had stopped like 42 cases of terrorism. And they started to push back, and they're like, well, okay, not really. It stopped 13. Right. And then they asked again, and basically they said, okay, okay, yeah. it was one. one. And then they said, well, <laughs> what, was, what was that one? And it was like a cab driver in yeah. San Diego who had sent sent, money a, sent a couple America, thousand yeah. dollars to you know, somewhere in the like, Middle Hamas East, and that, that yeah. was the, yeah. the, the, the terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. He said, okay, so we, we have all this, this program we're spying on. You know, basically everyone in America, and you caught one guy sending a thousand dollars to, to yeah. the Middle East. Exactly, seems like maybe disp- disproportionate. Yeah. Um, for for folks who are um, listening to this on the radio or uh, at home in a podcast or driving or whatever it might be, uh, as a reminder, this is the Commonwealth Club of California program, and we are talking to Barry Eisler, former covert CIA operative. <laughs> attorney get that, and it. Silicon Valley startup executive. It is imperative that these things be mentioned whenever you say his name. I do it just when we have lunch. I make sure to repeat that as well. Uh, but most importantly, he is the author of many best-selling thriller novels, including the latest, The God's Eye View. And I am Mike Masnick, your moderator. Um, you can hear Commonwealth Club programs on the radio. Uh, Which you may be doing right now. Catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and see programs, video and videos uh, on our YouTube channel. Okay, uh, that is it for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the first half of that interview. We'll be back with the conclusion next week, which touches on a variety of other topics. Not just focused on the surveillance state stuff so uh thanks for listening and we will see you next week